Blog Talk Radio. And he attached that to a, a child's chair. 
and then told her, come come into the other bedroom, uh, boy's bedroom, which is was verboten for her. And so she, this was a big draw that she would get to go into this, this bedroom. And um, we have a special princess chair for you. So um, she sat in the chair, and then he cranked the generator and made her touch it. And, of course, she got a horrible shock. And that was just one of the things that he did that w- that was really, oh, my gosh. And... I think a lot of times, I mean, I think of my sister, and we had a little roundabout in our house where we could run around it. We'd go from the kitchen to the to the dining room to the what we called the spare room to the bathroom, through the laundry room, and back into the kitchen again. It made a roundabout. And so we would chase each other through that. My sister was five years older than me, and we'd chase each other around through that. And I remember one time when we were going through the kitchen and my sister slipped and fell and her foot went under the refrigerator. And, of course, I was hot on her heels, and so I came up behind her. And she went, she literally, my sister had a flair for the dramatic, and so she literally put the back of her hand against her forehead and went, go ahead, finish me off. And, of course, I thought that was wildly amusing and, you know, like I was going to actually kill her because she had her foot caught under the refrigerator, you know. Um, And those are the kinds of things, uh, you know, that kind of a story is what I think of when I think of of siblings. I think of sibling rivalry. But that's not what we're talking about today, is it, Nancy? Well, sibling rivalry, there's a difference between sibling rivalry and sibling abuse. And abuse is when there is a victim and a and an aggressor and the victim does not want the abuse it does not want the abuse and the child, there's usually tears and it's uh intermingled with emotional abuse and it's usually it's not age appropriate so children under the age of 4 is kind of questionable but the severity of the abuse is is what uh, needs to be considered. In defining sibling abuse, um, and there are very few researchers on this particular area, the deflection uh, from sibling abuse has usually been to birth order. And researchers that research this particular type of domestic violence are very apologetic in their beginning statements and that they are very aware. One of the first ones was Vernon Wehi, and um, he concluded that uh, siblings were uh, were actually enacting the majority of child abuse, and the emphasis has for a long time been on child abuse uh, from a parent or a step parent, but the right now we have an epidemic of uh, siblings who are abusing each other. We have 19. It's estimated that we have 19 million children that are being abused by their siblings, and we also have in our culture the aftermath of 40 million adult sibling abuse survivors. Wow. Um, Amy, is that your take? I mean, Nancy's telling us about research showing. Is that what your research showed? Um, well, actually, uh, I'm glad that you're quoting Vernon Wehe because he is the um, first and kind of pioneer on the topic of sibling abuse. And he defined it as consistent and persistent charges of inadequacy, uh, intimidation or control through f- physical force and emotional denigration. And I, I think it's really important what you're bringing up, Heather, in terms of defining and distinguishing sibling rivalry from sibling abuse. The easiest way I have found to conceptualize it is sibling uh, rivalry is to sibling abuse as teasing is to bullying. Okay, so we're talking degree. We're talking, are we talking intent? We're talking about intent for sure. We're talking about the non-reciprocal nature of abuse and bullying, if we were going to compare the two. And um, I would add to this that there's an unpredictable nature. I'm in the process of writing an article, actually, to further sift out the definition and try and bring real clarity to what is termed sibling abuse. Part of the problem is that in the literature, the terms conflict, rivalry, aggression, violence, and abuse are all used interchangeably. And this tends to neutralize the intensity of sibling abuse. 
Um, sibling abuse contributes to a state of helplessness and powerness, powerlessness in the victim in the, the sense that there's an inability to self-protect. And in that um, aspect, there's a chronic state of distress and despair. The people that I interviewed described it in the following ways, which I think really um, highlights its intensity and its duration. Um, physical torture, traumatic, debilitating, devastating, relentless, damaging, whereas rivalry fosters competition, cooperation, and negotiation so that there's positive aspects to it. There are no known positive results of sibling abuse. So rivalry, when we say sibling rivalry, and we tend to uh, kind of glump any kind of uh, interaction, you know, uh, uh, between siblings as sibling rivalry. Um, mm-hmm. But what you're saying is it's not rivalry. Rivalry is when uh, siblings compete with each other in a somewhat healthy manner. But abuse um, is where one person definitely has the leg up. I was doing a little little uh, a review of some of the literature and uh, actually found uh, that the University of Michigan Health System covers this in their webpage. And what they say is that there are signs of sibling abuse that parents can look for. Um, they say that one child always avoids the other the other child. Um, that the victim child has changes in behavior, sleep patterns, eating habits, nightmares or they act out, um, they act out in uh, sexually inappropriate ways, they, the children have rigid roles. So I know in raising my children, sometimes one would be the leader, the other one would be the leader. You know, I mean, it, 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 they would maybe not frequently or all the time, but there was change, you know, depending on, on what they were doing. You know, one would be kind of the uh, silently acknowledged better one at that. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, There's emotional indicators of sibling abuse, which are much the same uh, or mirror the um, indicators of parent-child abuse. And when I was reading this list, I thought, well, this is just very, this is just typical of of a child, of of a person who is being abused. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. The other thing that I noticed that was similar with domestic violence is that what they say here as signs of sibling abuse is that the roughness. Uh, or violence between the siblings increases over time. And, of course, that's a a telltale sign of domestic violence when it is an escalation uh, uh, in the negative interaction. Um, Mm -hmm. Nancy, did you have these signs as a victim of this? Oh, absolutely. I had what was called, and I still have it, it's something that I deal with for the rest of my life. I had what's called complex PTSD, And complex PTSD is a form of PTSD that you get in childhood, which is most resistant. And I was uh, showing great uh, signs of uh, depression, anxiety, difficulty with focus, wanting to isolate, which are classic uh, symptoms of PTSD. Complex PTSD is very, very resistant, and a lot of uh, clients, or uh, victims go into uh, talk therapy, and it it doesn't dislodge usually through talk therapy. It, it's uh, helpful uh, with EMDR and different trauma treatments. Um, so a lot of uh, adults are have this, and they are often misdiagnosed. And so I I went through a lifetime. Uh, of having the symptoms that you're talking about, but most specifically complex PTSD. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to talk about the impact on the the adult um, that that was the child who was abused by a sibling in a, in, a, in a few minutes. But right now, I want to talk about parents. Where are the parents, Nancy? Where were your parents when this was going on? Uh, my mother. Um, primarily uh, got pregnant in in a successive order. She and my father created four girls, and the two last babies were not timed. Uh, She was pregnant uh, soon after her third one. And we were a Navy family in Europe, and uh, basically at the age of four, 
she said to me one day, uh, this is your new mother. She's going to help you. And because my mother was just absolutely overloaded, and I was given to my older sister. Oh. And, yeah. Within the same and family. Within the same family. The child that is um, overloaded with the burden of taking care of other children, this is a risk factor for sibling abuse, and this is what happened in my life. My mother, when I would uh, share with her that something was not right in in my childhood, would basically go into denial, and she'd say, I don't believe that's happening, and I would be given ice cream or some deflection from what had happened, or she would say something to the effect, I don't like angry little girls. I you know, or, or basically she'd separate us mm, mm. and um but would not address the issue. Mm. Wow. And right now oh. what we have as far as parents is the economy has created a situation where more and more children are unsupervised. Uh you'd think that the issue of sibling abuse would be getting better but it's getting worse. Um, because the children, uh, parents are working at one and two jobs, and they're unsupervised. Wow. And they're learning uh, an awful through video games and different things like CSI on how to hurt people. Oh, my God. And so the uh, sibling abuse is the number one cause of bullying, our culture thinks that bullies are basically falling down from the sky and they're actually in boot camp in their homes. They're practicing on each other. So the child that is practiced on is either going to be aggressive with other children or send out signals to other children that they can well, be let's bullied. Well, let's talk about the, the, the causes of, of this kind of behavior in, in a couple minutes here. Um, uh, Amy... What when, what where what about the parents? I mean, obviously Nancy had a very I think unusual situation, didn't she? Um, it's no, it's not so unusual. I think um, what I have found in my study is uh, really supports um, Nancy's experience in terms of um, a sibling placed in the role of caregiver, so that becomes uh, this role confusion, and the sibling, usually the older sibling, not always. Um, gets a sense that they're the parentified child and they're responsible for keeping the younger child in line. That's part of it, but also what can contribute to that sense of role confusion is that the um, sibling in the caregiver position is resentful and is displacing their anger onto um, the victimized child. But job and financial stressors in my study were also found to be um, a risk factor. You know, when there's stress within the family, there's often also a single parent family, which contributes to the role confusion. And it was also found that there's favoritism and and collusion. So oftentimes there's competition between the siblings for parental attention and the parental collusion of, you know, you really need to listen to your older sister or your older brother. They have important things to say, and they're not really saying them in a productive way, such as mommy loves me more than you and you were never a wanted child. Um, Other elements that were found uh, among the family climate, or you're saying where are the parents when this is happening, is that there's a lack of presence. You know, in a single-parent home, if we still use the term latchkey child, these children are coming home to an empty house with no parental supervision. And oftentimes what the um, abused sibling does to protect themselves is to take refuge in a friend's home and usually will attempt to not come home until um, the parent is at home. But by but uh, there were many cases where when the parents did come home, the child was in such arms over being exposed to this child unsupervised that they became the the target of the problem. Here the parent is coming home from a hard work day's work, trying to de-stress, and the child who was victimized may be hysterical um, from what they've just suffered for the past few hours, but all the parent can hear is that they're causing distress. Um, and as I said earlier, sometimes the abusive, uh, I mean, the uh, the parent or parents are unable to manage the abusive sibling themselves. They just feel that this child is out of control and they don't know how to address it. 
And then there were some cases where, interestingly, the child who was being abused was taken for therapy because not that it was necessarily being identified that they were being abused by their other child, but just because the symptoms were emerging that they were in distress, whether it was academic performance or low self-esteem or all of these other array of symptoms. But in my report, having interviewed adults who had gone through this experience, they thought at the time that this was not helpful because it reinforced the idea that they were the essence of the problem. Ah, that there was something wrong with them. Right, exactly. As a child, yeah. Exactly. Um, uh, Yeah, boy, I'm feeling really guilty about my childhood. (laughs) 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 And my poor sister. (laughs) That's what happens when people learn more about this. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so yes, yes. Uh, th- this is this is very interesting. How come I you know, I that that's I, I'm from the Midwest. We say in the Midwest, how come instead of why. Um we also end pre- sentences with prepositions. Um <laughs> but how come we don't talk about this more frequently. I mean, everybody's heard about domestic violence. Everybody's heard about school bullying. Everybody's heard about sibling rivalry. Why hasn't everybody heard about sibling abuse? That's a great question. I, I'm raring to go for that. But if Nancy wants to take a, a, a stab at that one first, I, I, I give her the airwaves. Okay, Nancy, uh, give 19, us your shot at that one. In the 1970s, uh, there was uh, a great uh, attention on battered women, and uh, it started off uh, the movement basically in England uh, by Del Martin. Del Martin was a part of this, and um, there was a great deal of difficulty getting into the privacy of, of of relationships of men and women and their abusive relationships. The privacy of this type of situation of sibling abuse is even more impenetrable uh, in that it's almost taboo to talk about uh, family members. I I believe that as a species, we've been going around in groups for a long time. And when you're a part of a group, you know that your survival is more so if you uh, remain within the group and are quiet. And that's why a lot of adults, I, I have contact with adults all over the world and they basically will not disclose what happened. They're very, very afraid to disclose to their families what happened because they have a great deal of fear. So this particular issue has never, ever had a movement. I hope that I'm a part of starting that movement, Um, but there's a great deal of fear from especially by the victim to even confront the aggressive sibling and the family unit wants to stay intact so the secret of sibling abuse oftentimes does not come out and as a trainer okay. I I train counselors and social workers police officers and so forth and many of them come up to me afterward and say I I am so sorry that I have not ever broached this this question in therapy so the uh sibling abuse goes long into many uh, adult Nancy, lives Nancy we have a caller I want to go to our caller uh, caller are you there Yes I am Okay and what uh, where are you calling from I'm calling from New Jersey New Jersey, and your first name? My name is Adafa. Adafa, okay. Thank you for joining us. And do you have a comment or a question? Yes. I've been a victim of sibling abuse as a child and as an adult. I had one sister in particular. I was born six years after her, and she was quite abusive to me physically, mentally, and emotionally throughout my whole life until I got married and moved away from home. So she remained in the home with my with my mother after my father passed and she she really treated my mother really bad but my mother used to enable her. In addition to that I had two other brothers, you know, from the same union with my mother and father. One was very laid back and inattentive and the other one was very aggressive verbally and physically. But um 
he he when pretty you say much aggressive. A, do you mean abusive? Yes, he very between being aggressive. Have a conversation with him without him blowing up. Everything always had to escalate, and and you know he had like this King Kong attitude with with females, and he still do to this very day. Yeah. Fast forward, um, when my mother died, the two brothers returned to the home because they pretty much wanted to keep an eye and watch on my sister who lived with my mother because they knew that she had taken advantage of my mother and she had access to a lot of my mother records and funds and the whole nine yards, and she has always been very clever at concealing things. Okay. What happened was when the two brothers joined in to watch her, all three of them turned around and ganged up on me. So you became the family whipping post. Right. Four yeah. years later. Nancy, or um, Amy, let me ask you this. Is this common? Are, are you Have you seen this kind of behavior before where the entire family gangs up on one? Um, that's unusual in the research that I've conducted, but that certainly doesn't mean it doesn't exist, nor does it make it less relevant. Um, yeah. I, I have seen what I termed before collusion between a parent and the abusive child. So not necessarily that there's several siblings who are in on this, but the fact that the parent doesn't support the victim in this situation is a double whammy, of course. Right, which right? is exactly what happened, which is exactly what happened because my mother was very dependent upon myself, my spouse, and my children for support and companionship, although she lived with another sister who treated her so bad but you could never say anything about this sister. The only time you could have a comment was when she was in the midst of the, the bad treatment. Mm, mm. I agree with uh, you in talking about this. I'm right now dealing with, uh, you know, I'm 65. I'm dealing with a 93-year-old mother who one year ago I walked in and found out that she was dealing with elder abuse, and exactly. I, I have not been allowed access to my mother for one year because my abusive sister is power of attorney, and mm-hmm. as sibling abuse goes into our latter years of life, it escalates, and there I have uh, two others who have signed paperwork that I not be allowed to see my mother. My mother has Alzheimer's. And well, you have to go to the courts right now. I'm telling you. Go to the courts. To, yes, I have. I and have done everything I'll, that I... Whatever you can. I Read have, I, right I have now, invested undue influence. For the last and year caller, of I, my I, life. I, I, I want to jump in How here a little bit because... We have another caller, Nancy. Um, do you have any recommendations be, for our, our caller, Nancy? I what, absolutely. What situation? From one year of fighting this, at the first portion of finding out that my mother was in elder abuse and that my abusive sister is basically like uh, a sister mafia has come around me, and my sister has basically convinced my sister's they better be on her side. I yep. know that they're dipping into my mother's money. I know that, and I did not have $30,000 to fight this. What I have learned recently is that I can write to the judge for a review in the county where my mother lives and basically lay out everything that's been going on. It took me a year to figure this out that there are judges within the county, uh, the probate judge, to re- mm-hmm. to basically make a statement. It doesn't cost money. Okay. Nancy, or um, I'm sorry, Amy, in your experience, in your study, did you find that the legal system is often used uh, in these situations? Um, I have found that it's the only time that these kinds of cases come to the attention of authorities when it gets yeah. to that point, and usually it's at the point of uh, severe physical abuse, and I'm talking about usually after the fact. Like with domestic violence, it's after the person is dead. You know, the, it's like the idea of these orders of protection, that they really serve you when it's too late. 
So that's why it's so important, as we were talking about earlier, is to understand why this remains under the radar and how to get it out from under. Wow. I thank think, you for I calling. Think, thank you for calling, just, uh, caller, and, and I really appreciate just before hearing you, I, go, I wish you all the luck in the world. Sorry. Just before I go, you brought up domestic violence. Remember, domestic violence does not have to also be physical. It could be psychological. Of course. Direct. Of course, yeah. See yeah. those and, things that... That's hard to measure, but they are are they are there. What Absolutely. is very important is yeah. to remember that we have the largest generation of baby boomers alive today, That's and it's right. a very very critical need at this point because yeah. adult children will take advantage of their elders. Oh, I'm sorry. I accidentally so, disclosed to you, caller. I didn't mean to do that. Um, uh, but I do appreciate your call, and I do appreciate your points. Um, yes, and, and from what I'm hearing, Nancy and Amy, uh, I'm hearing domestic violence, but not between intimate partners. I'm hearing domestic violence between brothers and sisters. Um, the, the, the Everything that you've been saying at this point is so, so similar. Um, and, and do both of you see that as well? And Nancy, do you see that? In the research by John Cafaro, he basically is, and and Vernon Wehi, they they basically concluded that uh, John Cafaro started saying this is this is the number one cause of domestic violence. It's not heterosexual or same sex uh, adult couplings. It's children, and. I asked him, I basically interviewed him, and I said, how many how many uh, adult sibling abuse survivors are there? And he said a low uh, ballpark number would be 40 million. And then he concluded that sibling abuse is the number one cause of domestic violence. It's the number one cause of child abuse. It's the number one cause of incest. And it's the number one cause of bullying. But well, that is inter- that's very interesting because I also cite that in my research, but actually my study that I cite is from 1990, and I haven't found any more recent um, statistics to prove that it's the most co- common form of um, family violence, which is problematic because there's no national um, statistics on sibling abuse, and there's no yes. statutes to distinguish all forms of sibling abuse from incest. There's no training for child welfare workers to assess for the prevalence of this yet. Mandated reporters are mandated, to use the word again, are mandated to report all forms of violence within the home. But there's a lack of definition legally and empirically. There's no federal law that protects siblings from other siblings. And um, to and, and this kind of feeds into your question about why is it under the radar. It's because it goes back to that idea that the terminology is used interchangeably so that even sufferers of sibling abuse don't recognize that they are, in fact, being abused. And this leads to a lack of entitlement um, regarding their experience, a lack of validation from family and society that what they are in fact experiencing is abusive. Then we have the problem of cultural variations of differences of definitions of sibling, what constitutes sibling abuse. We have a culture of secrecy. We have closed family systems. We have, as um, Nancy said, a fear of retribution um, on the victim for reporting. So there's a lot that we need to work through. Yeah, wow. Gee, thank you for pointing that out, Amy. Uh, We have another caller. Caller, are you there? Yes, am I the caller? You are the caller. Thank you for calling in. What is your first name? Uh, My first name is Kristen. I live in Seattle, and I'm the one who was put in an electric chair by my big brother, who was the kind of (laughs) scientist, evil genius. And I'm so glad to hear you you ladies talking about this, because what you're just saying is true, no validation. When I ran to my mother and I was little, she said, oh, all big brothers tease their little sisters. You know, my big brother teased me. And as I went through life and I'd, you know, share these stories with people, they would go, oh, all big brothers tease my, you know, and I, and I would get stories of hijinks. But I, I couldn't get them to understand the words that you said earlier about this, which is persistent and evil, and there is, you didn't say evil. And escalating? Was and it escalating, And nothing Kristen? good about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, Kristen, you did you also that? find that it, the, the abuse escalated over the years? 
Did it get yes, worse? And she said that. I said yes. I, uh, um, I re- there was a lot of you know arm bending and twisting when I was little, and when I got older, it went to trying to drown me in the swimming pool and suffocate me with a pillow. He always stopped short just when I was blacking out of these things because. He he didn't want to lose my parents' love, I guess, <laughs> and I guess he realized they they would be mad at him if he they if he killed their only daughter. Well, you know, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, he very much wanted their love. He was very needy, and you know, I as I got older, I realized he was mentally ill. As his life went on, he was in and out of psychiatric hospitals, and there was a lot of drugs, and he finally died of that. You know. He had a very unhappy life, and mm. he, his the, the wives. He had <clears throat> three wives, and uh, my mother whispered to me. She goes, "You know, I found out that he beat his wives." And I went, "Well, of course, he beat the yeah. first female he could get his hands on. This was his lifelong pattern. Why are you surprised?" She well, just, what's I really tried interesting? She just didn't get it. I think a part of what is interesting is that, of course, the victims' um, stories are compelling. Um, and important to be given voice to. But what's reflected in the literature, and again, the literature is very scarce on this topic, is the perspectives or the implications for the victims, which leaves one wondering as to what was going on for the perpetrator. Heather, you had asked, you know, where were the parents? And that's an important question. But I think it's also also an uh, important question for further research is to understand what is going on with these perpetrators because obviously they are in need of help and attention as well. He was taken to the psychiatrist as a child. First of all, the researchers, there are very few researchers on this. And this is what, when we're thinking about proactive things in this, uh, segment uh, of talking about this, we need researchers, and research, there isn't monies for this particular topic. There are monies for birth order, which is a deflection and uh, from all of this type of abuse, mm-hmm. and people are more um, readily available to the topic of reading about birth order, let's say, in Time magazine or or Ladies Home Journal, or or whatever. Uh, but that's well, that's what's needed, and what else is needed is that parents need to be instructed of the signs and the symptoms of sibling abuse. And one of the things that I often advocate when I go out and do trainings is that parents have regular family meetings about what is behavior protocol in our household and have children actually work together with the parent in establishing the rules and displaying them in a noticeable place in the house. That's not what's being done right now with stressed-out parents. They don't even have time for meetings. But if there is one thing that would be helpful, it would be to establish behavior protocol and that we do not have secrets in this house. Amy. Yes. How does this behavior affect people as adults? Kristen, our caller, just said that it has affected her. Kristen, how has it affected you as an adult? Well, did it affect uh, your choice of profession? Did it affect your 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 relationships with men? How did it affect affect you as an adult? Well, you know, I, I I never had a feeling that I needed to be married. Whenever I got close to that, I would uh, start to panic at the idea of being under the power of some man. So I've never married, and I've never had children. I've never wanted either. I was mostly lived alone. And so I listened to uh, what Amy was saying yesterday, earlier about um, isolating and, um, you know, <laughs> and that, I thought, well, these, all, it all sounded right, everything she said. Yeah. Um, well, uh, can I substantiate what I said earlier? Um, with uh, Wehe's findings, which were ranged from low self-esteem to depression to anger to PTSD and eating disorders and substance abuse, and then um, touched on the idea of difficulty with interpersonal and intimate relationships. So I was curious, and what was the starting point of my research was to understand what difficulties in interpersonal relationships or intimate relationships specifically. And on the most concrete level, obviously when you have a sibling who's telling you 
So what I found, let me just back up for a second, is that there were cases of physical and emotional abuse and emotional abuse only. So you would never really see physical without the emotional components. So when you're being told emotionally in one way or another that you're, that you're no good, to say the least, um, you take that in, right, and you internalize those feelings and thoughts. And you start to feel self-hate and self-blame and self-denigration. And then what happens is we externalize those feelings and we project those feelings into our relationships with others. And we assume that we're going to be perceived in the same way that our sibling perceived us. And in regard to intimacy, intimacy becomes very scary or threatening and vulnerable because your most trusted peer betrayed that sense of closeness. So usually what happens is that there's an intense uh, inability to trust others. There's a feeling of insecurity in relationships, a fear of abandonment, um, a fear of dependence, and skepticism around support, all tied into obviously um, what has been so deeply portrayed by this um, by the sibling, so it's you know, hard to tr- at the moment yeah. at the moment I touched yeah. that generator and got that shock. Yeah, I remember my world just changed because mm-hmm. I was a very happy, trusting little girl. And at that moment, I remember because mm. my big brother was kind of in in the room too, and I had thought he was my champion. I thought I can't trust anybody. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to realize that. And why it's such a crime, sibling abuse, is that neurologically the brain is in fast uh, neurological progression and the brain never forgets this. The threat uh, or the betrayal is significant because a, a sibling is more genetically more like yourself, uh, even over a parent. You're more of a genetic copy of each other. So the betrayal is significant. The negative cognitions of what happens to a child uh, lodge in particular portions of the brain. One of them is called the hippocampus, and right next to it is the amygdala. So there's a physiological component, and there's negative cognitions that are lodged in the brain at the point of trauma of, I must be bad, I must be unlovable. I must be fatally flawed. Nothing good is ever going to happen to me. And these do not dislodge mm-hmm. unless the individual works really proactively. I was uh, basically only diagnosed correctly at the age of 48. Before the age of 48, I probably had 12 different diagnoses. And I kept on going from one therapist after another and thinking, I'm going to get better with this particular type of therapy. And it wasn't until I was diagnosed with complex PTSD instead of borderline personality disorder, attention deficit, chronic depression, anxiety, so forth. And <laughs> had so many diagnoses. I, I, it was almost comical when I would go to into therapy and say, okay, what what do you want to give me this time? And so when I got complex PTSD, it meant that at an early age, my brain was significantly altered. And and yes, when you are traumatized, as this caller is talking about, you significantly change. And I was significantly abused at the age of 10. For most of my life, I did life around the developmental age of 10, And what does a 10-year-old know about going into relationships and parenting? From the age of 10 to 38, I absolutely had no recall of what had happened to me until the age of 38. For 28 years, I forgot what happened, and I was absolutely out there doing very risky things. My behavior patterns were not consistent with what a parent should be, and I made a child along the way. And that's probably why I stand and talk about this. It's because there's a trickle-down effect to the next generation. Wow. Amy, is that consistent with your findings in your study? 
Uh, which piece? Because there's so much of what was said in that, in that um, statement that it made me think about a lot of different things, including types of therapy that are most helpful. Um, so I'm not sure where to start. Um, I can start with that because I'm wondering, Nancy, if you're saying that um, you found out of all the treatment that you've been through that cognitive therapy, and I don't know if that's what you're terming it, was the most helpful in terms of challenging or breaking your thought processes. Well, EMDR was the most helpful. I felt mm-hmm. a significant shift three hours after it, and the next week of my life I became more assertive and I started for the first time in my life, getting what's called instincts, which should have been in place in the early developmental stages of my life. I started realizing who was a a negative person, who was a person that I should avoid, and I started having instincts at the age of 48. Before Mm -hmm. that, I was involved in many different types of therapies um, that shift did not shift me at all in fact after i came away from the therapy situations i was literally shaking um because i was getting close to something and the therapist had no idea what to do hmm so so yes i've also found that um there are those who tend to suppress the memories and i guess that contributes to the PTSD aspect because um, what develops what I've termed abuse amnesia um, for really kind of similarly similarly talking about the idea of um, suppression of thought, suppression of memory, because it's so painful that the idea of living with the memory gets stored and instead what's happening, as Nancy, as you had said, you you act out or you develop behaviors that really speak to the experience. The majority of my life at what's called Stockholm Syndrome. Mm. I had had complete loyalty and Mm. allegiance to my sister. And and what's going on in my family right now is the secret is out. I've written this book, and my family, even though they, you know, they pretty well realize that my, uh, the one in charge in my family is the abusive sibling, they've gone along with her, and heaven only knows what's going to happen when my mother dies. Uh, the distribution of property and wealth and so forth and so on, they become, as a group, I am uh, considered the scapegoat. They don't use that word scapegoat, but I'm considered the misfit and the one that is the bad seed in the family. So the family basically... Let me interrupt for a minute, Nancy. I wanted to ask our caller, Kristen, did you see this in your family? You mentioned you had another brother um, and you had a a mom and dad, of course. Did, Did you become any kind of scapegoat in your family because of your brother's behavior? How do you mean scapegoat? I mean, did, were you, if there were problems in the family, were you perceived as the one that was kind of causing everything because you were the one that No, was... no. Uh, 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 evil brother was always perceived as the, tr- as the troublemaker from the, because he was. Because he was just so, so the, obviously So there was an awareness that this, guy, that, that, that this guy was the source of the problem. Yes, but they were looking at the problems he was having in school. I think he was hurting other children and being called into the school psychiatrist and the fact that he was hurting his little sister was like not of any interest to anybody it just wasn't real or they didn't want to hear about it my mother was tired you know she was like all right enough already stop tattling and then and he would threaten me he'd say if you if you tell mom about this i'm going to pull your pigtails out and leave two bloody holes on either side of your head so i learned to shut up you know Yes, and it was not said at the end of my mother's life as she was old like Nancy's is and um and I was very worried about him coming back home and wanting to quote take care of her cuz that's what he said he wanted to do. And she told me she goes please please don't let him come and live with me. She was afraid. She knew. So wow. my older brother and I just kept him out of the loop. He had fortunately moved to Australia long before so we it wasn't until after she was dead we let him know. No, the I'm majority sorry. He died of the Amy, I'm sorry, we never told him. No, right. Majority Amy, of is this typical where where the parents can be aware, especially later in life, that that this this kid is is you know really a problem? 
Sure. Um, I think that that contributes to when there's a sense of collusion, so the parent does know and is aware and, again, supports the behavior and sees the child as the, you know, has something to learn from the the perpetrator or, um, again, if they're passively accepting what's going on or if they're not at home to see what's going on and they're only hearing about it later, what happens is that the um, child becomes identified, the victim becomes identified as the problem. And I think what happens, too, is that when um, the victim may attempt to reach out for help, it's also viewed as a problem because um, there's been a culture of either secrecy or whatever the environment has created in that we don't talk about what happens. Um, And as the caller was just talking about, about being threatened overtly by the perpetrator if they were going to tell or, you know, don't tell or I'm going to kill you if you tell. There's also implicit threats that are never stated, but maybe the repercussions um, come back twofold so that the beatings become um, more chronic or the beatings become worse or, you know, the child uh, who's perpetrating the violence knows that, uh, attention has been sought. Hmm. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, uh, thank you so much for joining us, caller. I, I think you added a lot. Is there anything you'd like to uh, add to our discussion at this point? That I am very glad you ladies are doing this. I think you're going to make a big difference. I hope so. Thank I want you, you to know thank that you. on Facebook we have a group for women, adult sibling abuse survivors. I started it, and I, I welcome you to come into this group. It's a confidential closed group on Facebook. Oh, okay. How do I find that? It's on Facebook under Women Adult Sibling Abuse Survivors, and you can contact me through Hope for Siblings, and I would love to stay in contact with you. Hope for Siblings is my website. Okay, and that right. four is a digit. Oh, that four is a digit. It's not oh, oh. spelled out. All right. Thank you for that. Okay. Thank you. That's it. Thank Thanks. you very much for joining us, Kristen. Okay. Bye. Um, Amy, uh, I'm I'm kind of gobsmacked by all this because I have to confess that even with all my work in the domestic violence er- arena, I just never thought of sibling violence as anything that big and it's huge isn't it it is absolutely huge amy are you aware of any scholars who are are doing more research in this area uh i am (laughs) i i'm doing research on the in the area um i'm very interested in identifying aspects of risk and resilience for victims of sibling abuse Um, i'm interested in developing clarity about a definition of abuse so that it's not confused with sibling violence. I know sibling violence, I told you about all the terms that are used interchangeably, and one specifically is sibling violence and sibling abuse. And I just think that the term sibling violence in and of itself um, kind of conjures up a picture of a potential one-time act that can be enduring. But once you use the term abuse, it really implies an enduring nature. And I think we need to start using that term much more consistently and not um, interchange it with all the other terms that are used to ascribe to the experience. Okay. Um, um, and, uh, Nancy, do you, you mentioned a, a group that people can, can go to. Uh, do you want to give more information about that? Do you want to uh, explain Facebook. more about that group? Uh, thank you. It's called Women, Adult, Sibling, Abuse, Survivors. I'd like to – it's on Facebook – and if anyone would like to know any more, uh, please look me up on the Internet, Hope for that's the number four, siblings, and I would uh, guide them toward that group. It's a, a private group, and um, I started it almost three years ago, and there are 119 um survivors in there. What I what I would like to share as far as domestic violence is that a great a great portion of battered women have histories of being um involved as children in sibling abuse. And so there's a dynamic called compulsion to repeat trauma mm-hmm. and not sequestered when we're looking at battered women uh, that a woman will enact or go toward uh, abusive situations. And so 
the mindset of the child goes into adults. I am a former battered woman as well. And uh, so I hope that that is looked upon in the domestic violence movement. And very rarely, uh, I, I always compliment anyone who brings me in as uh, at a conference because conference coordinators want to make money at their conferences, and when they bring me in at a domestic violence conference, the greatest focus is on battered women, which is 4 million, 4 million battered women. But there are 19 million children who are getting abused. So there is a, a more propensity or more numbers of uh little children that are getting... I'm going to interrupt you here, Nancy. Amy, is that consistent with your findings, that there's more um, uh, victims of sibling abuse than than, um, domestic violence? I can only quote past literature, which says that it's the most common form of family violence. But as I said, without any national statistics, it's very hard to um, glean the prevalence uh, of sibling abuse. That's okay. that's my take on it. I, I do want to also point out that I think that, um, Nancy, you're bringing to light uh, some other very important long-term implications of this experience um, with the defenses such as identification with the aggressor, which you were referring to as the Stockholm Syndrome, and the repetition compulsion, which is, you know, that, that one is destined to kind of repeat and seek out intimate partners who dominate and are abusive in, in nature. And um, these patterns need to be looked at and addressed. Addressed. Yeah, I, m- I must say when when you say that, I always think this smacks of victim blaming. You know, uh, so I always get real nervous when we start saying things like that. But if that's wait, what say that, that again. Shows, I'm so- say that again. Um, what, I, I always get my, you know, I mean, the hack, my hackles raise whenever I hear anything that smacks of victim blaming, which is, you know, okay, she chose this guy uh, for whatever reason, and so when you say that. You know, my uh, my first reaction is, uh-oh, we're blaming her. She's picking the wrong guys, you know, for whatever reason. And so that's my gut reaction. But if the data show this, then we have to believe those data. And, yeah, but it's um, also how the lens through which you see it. It's not necessarily that it's blaming the victim. It's that this is how we're constructed. You know, psychologically, we're constructed to repeat what's familiar. Um, and it's not necessarily that we want to or that we're seeking it consciously, but that um, this becomes such a part of our ego and who we are and deems our our future. That was and, our and, and we're destined to change it. We do have the ability to change it. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, Amy, are you aware of any resources for folks uh, that they can uh, go to and uh, um, and anything where if if you, a person is experiencing this, perhaps they've done like Nancy and they have um, uh, sought psychological counseling for themselves and, and had yeah, all Yeah, I've actually researched diagnosis. this and, and haven't come across um, very many resources, so I'm thrilled to hear that Nancy has a Facebook page and a group for adult survivors. I think that is wonderful, and if that can be done by the Internet where there's no restraints on geographic location, that's fabulous. I am a big proponent of therapy for anybody who is undergo- undergoing sibling abuse or, you know, has it in their past. Um, What type of therapy I think is very individualistic in terms of what people find helpful. There isn't enough research yet to determine which is um, the most evidence-based in regard to this uh, issue, but um, I certainly think that the more knowledgeable we become, the more resources we can provide, and the more um, expertise we can have in this realm. Yeah. What I would like to I'm in the beginning stages of it. I'd like to form a nonprofit uh, organization similar to Alzheimer's where uh, individuals can get information mailed to them and that there is a hotline and also that there would be meetings for survivors to come to. I see that this is important. And before that even happens, the reason that I wrote my second book, basically it took me eight years and five months to finish two books. I wanted the world to see what happens to adults. 
I hope yeah, I that think that's it, fantastic. And I'm on the same page with you in, in writing um, my own research and interviewing uh, people who have had this experience, and we can access uh, through the source what those long-term well, ladies, implications are. Well, ladies, I think we need are. to talk. We need, we need to talk about this <laughs> because mm-hmm. I, I absolutely believe that, uh, you know, there should be more support. I love the idea of starting a nonprofit that can get the word out and to help provide resources. So let's stay in touch. Meanwhile, thank you for providing the, the forum to do so. Thank you. Well, thank you. And don't forget that you can refer people to this website to listen to this program anytime. Uh, anytime. It's, it will be available within about 10 minutes, and it will be on our uh, webpage, and people can access it through the archive. You know, our time is up. I end the show with a quote. Uh, the best one that I could find for today was, abuse is the weapon of the vulgar. Um, not sure. Not sure how appropriate that is, but you know it it it, uh, it it says something. Give me give me points for finding a quote. Okay, it touched you. Join it touched next. you. <laughs> Love it. Join us next week as we uh, talk more about uh, three women and three ways. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.